Hello, welcome to the Dear Writer podcast. I'm Sarah. And I'm Ashley. We're two aspiring collaborative authors sharing our writing journey with you. The ups, the downs, and everything in between. Whether you're just starting out or a more experienced writer, we hope that you'll find this podcast inspiring and thought-provoking. And here's the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to Dear Writer. This is episode 23 and this is one of our Talking Shop episodes, the fourth one of these Talking Shop ones, which is always, I always find it really fun to have a bit of a chat about the things that we're reading. It's always interesting to see what each other have been up to the past month or so since we last recorded one. Yeah, and you know, I guess most writers are avid readers as well. So I always find this very interesting because I always have lots of books on the go, even ones that we don't mention on here. And sometimes it's hard to choose. (laughs) Yes, yes, I agree. So anyways, we should probably jump straight into it. My pick this month is a grammar book entitled Woe is I, The Grammophobe's Guide to Better English in Plain English by Patricia T. O'Connor. And I really like the cover. You're not going to be able to see it, so I'm going to describe it to you. The I is a person made with like <laughs> quotation marks, um, it's like brackets. And... <laughs> Anyways, so I enjoyed that. It's like a classic, you know, when you have those grammar faces with like colon, bracket. <laughs> well, no, yes. it's not like that, but you know, similar. you know how those sorts of things are made. It's kind of similar concept, I yeah. guess. Except the I is its body. <laughs> yes, yeah. So I'm probably about halfway through it. I've been enjoying it immensely, which is, you know, something to be said about when you about reading a grammar book, (laughs) mostly because it's incredibly witty. I thought I'd read out a few of the chapter titles because they made me laugh and I enjoyed it immensely. So one of them is Plurals Before Swine, Blunders with Numbers. (laughs) Um, Yours Truly, The Possessives and the Possessed. That's amazing. Death Sentence, Do Clichés Deserve to Die? They're very amusing, some of these, the chapter titles, and they have been giving quite, they give a lot of helpful and practical advice about fairly common grammar errors. Mm-hmm. So like, especially the plurals before swine, blunders with numbers about where you're trying to put S's when you've got plurals before words that mean a plural, like both, yeah, right. or, yeah. you know, that kind of thing, and you get confused about your sentence structure. Like woman. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. So, or like a couple, is it at that point, are you referring to like a couple as like a singular object or are you referring to like as a cup, couple as in like more than one of a thing and then like how you can get around mm. all the grammary stuff to do with that. So, And it's interesting, like I remember coming across, I don't know if anyone else has had this, but others can sometimes be slightly confusing because you're like, does it belong to the other or the other's? Yes. <laughs> yes. The other's footsteps. Hang on, there's more than one other. So yes, the others with it. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. So that's what <laughs> simple the, stuff. But. So that's what the, the plurals before swine blunders with numbers is that chapter is all about, which was quite helpful. Mm-hmm. It's also very amusing because she often writes grammar poetry in it. So she'll like make little limericks <laughs> or something to help you understand the concept so I have one here which I found very amusing so this was meant to help you understand the difference between there there and there so she wrote a poem which I think you'll find you'll enjoy so I'll read it to you because I had a good laugh about it all right they seem to have taken on airs 
they're ever so rude with their stares. They get there quite late. There's a hand in your plate and their eating was not even theirs. It's very amusing. So there's lots of these like little poetries throughout all of uh, poetries, poems throughout all of the <laughs> chapters. Oh my God. Oh, today is quite a day. I don't know why I'm struggling so much. But yeah. You need to read more of the grammar book. <laughs> yeah. Are you sure you've read this the whole way through? <laughs> I'm halfway through. I'm oh, okay. Halfway well, through. that explains it. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. I'm sorry. <laughs> halfway. It's fine. I'm halfway yeah. through. Although by far, my favorite chapter so far has been the death sentence, Do Clichés Deserve to Die? Where she pens some advice about using clichés and then ends the chapter with a whole list of her descriptions of overused clichés, which made me laugh a lot. So I thought I'd <laughs> I have a quote of her advice on using cliches, which I quite liked. So I thought I'd share that with you guys and you can kind of get a feel for her writing as well. Mm -hmm. So there's no way to eliminate all cliches. It would take a room full of Shakespeare's to replace them with fresh figures of speech. And before long, those would become cliches too. Vivid language is recycled precisely because it's vivid. But think of cliches as condiments, the familiar ketchup, mustard and relish of language. Use when appropriate and don't use too much. So that was quite a good way of thinking yeah. about cliches. And it is so true, you know, people turn things into cliches because they like the sound of it. So then exactly. someone else uses it and someone else uses it. And before you know it, you're it's just lost all of its meaning. And then I think it's sort of right about making up new cliches because occasionally I want to use a cliche and then I'm like, oh, it's a cliche. Maybe I should like slightly change the cliche and it sounds even worse. And you're like, oh my God, no, I can't put this in. <laughs> it just looks like you've got it wrong and confused yeah so I guess sometimes it's okay just to use the cliche if you have to I think once I had accidentally written something like the brightest tool in the box or something and then my younger brother who's great at pointing these things out he was like don't you mean the sharpest tool in the shed (laughs) you're like "Mm, maybe you just won't use this at all (laughs) oh that's really funny So I've written down a few of her overused cliches and her descriptions of them because I found them funny and I thought you would also find them funny. So I'll (laughs) go through a few of those. (laughs) So agree to disagree. And then she's described as people never really agree to disagree. They just get tired of arguing. (laughs) So true. So true. (laughs) Very true. So then blessing in disguise. And then she comments, not disguised well enough. (laughs) Also true. (laughs) Right. Um, Bone of contention. This geriatric expression is getting osteoporosis. I haven't actually heard that one. So maybe it truly is Ah. geriatric now. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe I'm just behind. Maybe so abused. I don't know. Hmm. (laughs) Days are numbered. A phrase that's not just overused, but depressing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No kidding. (laughs) And then, um, draw a blank and she says that's what you do when you run out of cliches (laughs) (laughs) so anyways that's my tool of the month woe is i i might have to get that one i think i would really enjoy that yeah i think you would enjoy it too it's it sounds along a similar vein to benjamin dreyer's book of dreyer's english yeah (laughs) so it's very enjoyable i'd highly recommend you all check it out if you want a more light-hearted grammar book i love light-hearted grammar books 
<laughs> so what's your choice for this month, Sarah? So mine is a book that I recently acquired. I'd been wanting this book for quite some time, but I was waiting for like Christmas and then I didn't get it at Christmas. And I was like, oh. so then I was like, well, fine, I'll put it on my birthday list because I wasn't super wanting to spend a lot of money on it. Although I was almost at that point where I was like, I'm just going to buy it myself. But <laughs> my younger brother previously mentioned, thank you, Matthew. <laughs> He got it for me for my birthday and it is called Writing in the Dark. Oh, that's a good cover. It is a good cover. It's got glow in the dark words for dark and it's <laughs> got almost a little skull, but then it kind of merges into a quill point end. What do you call them? A nib? nib. <laughs> um, I'm going with nib. People might correct. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought too, but we'll see. <laughs> Anyways, it's by Tim Wagoner, and I haven't fully read it through yet, but it is so far proving to be worth its money. It's about horror writing specifically, though I do think it's useful for other genres too. Like obviously Ashley and I have written young adventure, uh, young adult adventure <laughs> thrillers. <laughs> yeah. So the chapter headings give you a good insight into what the book covers, which is basically everything from how to build a better monster um, to kindling emotions of dread, terror, horror, shock, and disgust in your readers. And it defines each of those emotions as well and sort of how to create them into the psychology of fear and writing suspense. Yeah, I'm clearly getting a bit more into the, the horror themed the writing at the moment. Um, not entirely sure why. It sounds why, real interesting. Yeah. Because I was going to say, a lot of the emotions, like sure, some of the, the horror and disgust is often, you know, maybe not going to be in everyone's novel. But I feel some mm. of the other stuff, like dread, terror, shock, definitely are elements of a lot yeah. of books, or especially yeah. our teen fiction and then psychology of fear as well like our characters are terrified often so it'd be it's quite interesting well I mean every book has a certain amount of conflict in it if you don't have conflict within a book then you basically don't have a story and typically if you're having conflict you're probably going to have some of these emotions come up in some ways whether it's just fear of like losing someone or like you know in romance you might have fear of losing someone or so mm -hmm. you're you are going to face these emotions whether you're writing horror or not um some of the book is you know like writing monsters is a little bit more specific to the horror genre but even then because we've got I, villains in our book yeah exactly and yeah, i quotes, but have a great quote that actually I'm going to go straight to this quote which describes what he has to say about monsters so he said the prime qualities of a monster literal or symbolic human or inhuman are ugliness distortion violence cruelty savagery wildness and otherness anything can become a monster in your stories if you imbue it with one or more of these qualities so, you know, you might think of your monster as your villain, or it might be something that's even totally inanimate, might be something yeah. that they're just, your character has this really intense fear about, could become sort of a monster, or you could view it that way if you were like reading this book for other genres, like you don't have to write horror to necessarily be able to get a lot out of this book, I feel. It's basically what I want to say. <laughs> But he does, he has some really practical, actionable tips. And 
many examples and exercises to complete oh yeah at the end of each chapter he'll have like a couple exercises that you can do i think the writer is actually a professor so he's published close to 50 novels and seven collections of short stories um he's also written sort of tie-in fiction for like some big things like supernatural grim x-files alien doctor who nightmare on elm street transformers among others and I'm basically just reading this about the author at the back. <laughs> but yeah, he's received the Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in Long Fiction, multiple finalists for both the Shirley Jackson Award and Scribe Award. Yeah, he's well written and knows a lot about what he's talking about is, I guess, what I want to say. So I would definitely recommend his book and he presents it in such a way that you can quite easily understand and translate things into your own writing so he gave some tips regarding suspense just for a bit of an example there were quite a few but I've just picked a couple of them so he said make your character a normal person a normal person doesn't have special training skills or abilities to help them deal with threats that increases suspense because they can't easily deal with the threats physically, mentally, or emotionally. That is a very good point. Yeah. You know, like even if your character has some sort of supernatural quality, even if they're like the Clark Kent of your world, that We're doesn't mean <laughs> they don't have their kryptonite. So <laughs> talking about cliches. I know. <laughs> So, you know, you've got to have that weakness or the reader is not going to feel worried for your character and you're not going to be able to create that suspense, right? Mm -hmm. He also said, give the reader a superior viewpoint. If the readers know a bad thing is coming, even if the nature of that bad thing is unclear and the character doesn't, suspense is created. We've done this quite a lot in our book. (laughs) We have. I was just thinking that. I was like, ah, yeah. I think we've described it before in other podcast episodes as dramatic irony, um, which is a term I learned from the story grid. (laughs) It's definitely something because we use multi-perspective. It's a lot easier for us to have this effect happen because you can easily put in things that only one character knows and others don't. And then you can see stuff coming, (laughs) which definitely gives a feeling of suspense, I think. Definitely. So, and then as a final sort of piece of advice, um, I chose a little part that he wrote about avoiding cliches and tropes. He said, don't go with your first idea or even your second and be suspicious of your third one. No matter how hard we all try, the first ideas we come up with are often retreads of something we've seen or read before without our realizing it. Toss out your first few ideas or at least keep massaging them until they're no longer run of the mill. And I would highly recommend that. It's so easy to just be like, oh, I've had this great idea. But then later on, you realize, actually, you've just stolen that from like a book you read a year ago or something. (laughs) I was going to say we had this exact problem a couple of weeks ago when we were trying to figure out what to do with the beta comments, beta mm. comments, comments from our beta reader. We often accidentally steal from ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> and we're like, oh, wait, we've already done that, more or less. <laughs> mm. So we ended up going through quite a few renditions of what we could do um, yeah. in the plot to make the cards fall. So yeah, we did go through quite a few ideas before we landed on the one that we're going to use it was really tricky because some situations it feels like there's only one 
fix for it but you really do have to dig hard and go like no there cannot just be one solution to this problem we can't just do this yeah there's got to be something (laughs) else there has to be more than one solution and if you try hard enough and think long enough you can get there (laughs) and it might seem a bit strange when you first come across it but the more you develop that idea the, the more you kind of begin to think okay actually this could become realistic as long as I do this, this, this. And you might have to change some things. Yes, in order which is to get there. To do, but yeah. yeah. So I think Sarah came up with there. the idea, but she was like, uh, it's a bit weird. <laughs> yeah. I think I came up with like an idea before the one that we finally settled on as well. And we were like, mm, it just didn't quite feel right. And mm-hmm. I also felt that it was sort of cliche. It was like, this is the really cliche way of dealing with the problem. This is the second most cliche way of dealing with the problem. And it doesn't really feel right. So mm. hopefully our third one is not cliche. Hopefully not. It's at least mm. a little, it adds a little extra dynamic, I think, Yes. to it, which the others didn't. I agree. But yeah, so that was my choice, was Writing in the Dark by Tim Wagoner. So I would highly recommend you pick that up. And actually, it was quite funny. I heard about this book on a podcast that I was listening to, which is another great, I mean, aside from our podcast, it's a great reason for listening to podcasts <laughs> because sometimes you do hear these interviews with these authors and they're talking about their book and you're like, oh, actually, that could be really useful. So I actually, if you go, I don't know whether it's still there or not, because as we've discussed before on the Creative Pen, her episodes drop off after a little while. <laughs> but if you go on the Creative Pen, there may still be there. I have no idea where, but there may be an episode with Tim Wagoner where he talks about this book. So is that where you heard about it? Yes. <laughs> and then I, I looked on the back, actually, and it was quite funny because a long time ago, Ashley and I were in a writer's group in Taranga, and one of the writers in the writer's group in Taranga, she's done really well. I remember her first name being Lee, but I can't remember. Lee Murray, that's right. So she's written the Path of Ra series, and she's also a New York bestseller, I think now. I believe so. But yeah, so she's one of the people who have written like a little endorsement. I feel like yeah, there's another term go- for that, but we'll go with Yeah, that. there probably is. This is like us with the pen nib thing. I don't know if that's yeah. right, but it seems to describe what we're trying to talk about. Oh my God. But yes, yeah, so I was like, wow, it's not often that you pick up a book and then find someone you know has endorsed it. So then I felt like I had to buy it if she's endorsed it and she knows what she's talking about. Yeah, well, she gave us lots of helpful tips at the in the writing group, and she was really lovely. So yeah, I, I trust what she says. Mm. Anyways, should we move on? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What have you been reading for fun recently? So I think talked about this last time. I have been struggling so much to find books that engage me right from the start. I don't know why. What it is? Maybe it's just me at this time in my life, just not being able to one finish things to you know just not really sure what I I guess want to read so anyways I was complaining about this fact to some of my lab mates at work and one of them was like oh do you like reading teen fiction and I was like "Mm, I dabble (laughs) (laughs) I dabble sometimes and um he suggested this book, uh, We All Looked Up by Tommy Wallach and so I went and got it from the library because I was like, I need something. And I've been enjoying it quite a lot. I'm about maybe like 10 chapters through. 
Oh yeah. Yeah, quite a cool cover. I'll show you. Very teen fiction-esque. Oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can't see it, but it's like the titles all in lights, like little light bulbs, and then it's got some teenagers like sitting with blankets on looking up at the sky. Is that a campfire in the middle? Uh, unsure. No, it's someone <laughs> with a blanket. Oh, okay. Right, I see. It looked like a campfire. <laughs> <laughs> so I might just read to you the blurb from the back because it describes it quite well. So the blurb on the back is, before the asteroid, we let ourselves be defined by labels, the athlete, the outcast, the slacker, the overachiever. But then we all looked up and everything changed. So it's a book that follows a group of high school teenagers. They're in their final year of high school and it follows what they do when they find out that they only have two months to live because an asteroid's about to hit and destroy the world. So <laughs> I've been enjoying it a lot, actually, especially it's been quite obviously interesting reading it in uh, pandemic times because it does kind of mm. make you think a little bit about it. But yeah, it's multi-perspective, but third person, which works really well for this book because you're following all of the archetypes. Each character is like, as it says, like the athlete and the really smart one and the, the deadbeat one. And so it's quite interesting. You know currently like where all their lives are at the moment. That's what I'm up to. All of their problems and, you know, all the things that they're worried about. But obviously there's foreshadowing through the whole thing. There's this asteroid that's coming and I'm up to the part where they've just discovered, like it's just been on the news that there's a 66% chance that the asteroid is going to hit in two months and destroy the world. So they're all now like, what do we do with our lives? So <laughs> I'm liking it a lot. Um, it's written sounds well. Good. Yeah. Sounds like mm. one that I would quite like to. Oh, and the other interesting thing is he wrote an album to go with it, which Ooh. is another reason why my lab mate recommended it because we were listening to a playlist in the lab and he's like, these are very weird songs. And I was like explaining that we often pick songs that match uh, some of the chapters that we're writing. And then he was like, oh, there's this book. And I was like, oh, okay. So yeah, there's a, the guy's also written an album that goes along with it. That's cool. To match it. So I thought that was quite cool. Definitely recommend. We all looked up. Cool. What's your book for this month? Well, continuing on the sort of apocalyptic and horror theme we're running on today, I read Bird Box, which... I don't know whether people know it now because it is a Netflix film now, so more people know it. But I actually heard about the book on a podcast that I was listening to ages ago. Again, this one was on the Story Grid, which I heard about it. And I was reminded of it when I was looking, searching for a good movie to watch. I saw Bird Box was out on Netflix and I didn't, well, I have watched it, but I didn't suggest it to watch at that point because my husband, Dan, doesn't like horrors. <laughs> so I watched it by myself in the middle of the day to be safe. <laughs> but I had already read the book at that point. I decided to read the book first. The book is far better than the movie as books often are. <laughs> I should mention, sorry, Bird Box is by Josh Mellerman is who wrote it. And as I said, the film is terrible compared to the book well it's not terrible it's just they changed way too much let's just put ah. it that way they even changed the, the characters names and I was like why is that necessary why do you need to change the names of these people Were they weird like, does that matter or was no it, not... it was like ah, Cheryl and I can't even remember but I'm just like there's nothing wrong with Cheryl. Why did you change it? And they made her like a random old woman instead. Oh. And, <laughs> but there was like multiple okay. things. 
some of the changes I could see were, you know, to adapt it to the TV, like, yeah. but some of them were totally unnecessary. <laughs> Anyways, the book is about a woman who finds out she's pregnant, basically on the verge of the apocalypse. And it okay. alternates between her past experience of getting through the first year after the apocalyptic event happened and then the present, which is like several years later, right. where she's trying to escape her situation with not one but two children. There are creatures outside in quotation marks. And if you see them, you go crazy and homicidal slash suicidal. So whenever they go outside, they have to put on blindfolds. So that's basically the setup of the book. Mm-hmm. And I think it was really effective just because it literally takes a sense away from the character and away from you. So she's Mm -hmm. blindfolded, you're blindfolded, you have no idea what these creatures look like, what they can do. You just know that there's creatures out there and if the woman Mallory sees them, she will probably die. So, (laughs) and yeah, I also, I read the second book as well, which is called Mallory after the protagonist. And the second book wasn't quite as good as the first book, I felt. Mm -hmm. Um, That one was more multi-perspective because it had the perspectives from her children as well. But yeah, it just, it didn't quite hit the same notes. I will say though that the the second book was created very recently. Like I think it's just come out. And so he probably had a bit of influence from the pandemic coming through into it, which I saw a review on Goodreads. And someone was upset about that, but I thought it was actually kind of cool because I was like, yeah, I feel like it adds more realism. I can't remember what the line was. Oh yeah, that's right. It said something like it was only safe and unsafe. And I was like thinking about the pandemic and I was like clean or unclean. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite funny. Yeah. Especially being an operating room nurse. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It resonated with me. Let's just say that. that line in particular but yeah so I highly recommend that book it is a horror again (laughs) but it's not like super gruesome or anything it's more suspense and you know like I guess there's creatures in it that give it kind of that horror feel yeah it sounds real interesting especially I know the movie you're talking about I haven't watched it because I don't like horror movies but the book sounds very intriguing because the character's blindfolded that would make it really I don't it just yeah. intrigues me, you know? I'm like, oh, okay. So it's you like, don't know a lot then as well, which is quite cool. Yeah, she's not blindfolded while she's in the house and stuff. Yeah. Um, but every time she travels outside the house, they have to put these blindfolds on. And then it's like, because, you know, it's the apocalypse is like cars all over the street and the occasional body. And so they trip over things and they're like, oh my God, what was that? Is it in first person? No, I don't think it was. I can't really remember, to be honest, but I don't think so. Just curious how he did it was all. But yeah, I thought the structure was quite interesting, especially in the first one, because basically when it starts off, like the one situation is all these people who have conglomerated in the house that she's with. And then you get the other perspective of years later, there's just her and the children. And so you're like, well, something happened. Yeah, (laughs) these people must have died somehow so you know it's gonna happen but you have no idea how it happens right it's kind of interesting (laughs) does sound i'm just so interested in the like structure of how he wrote that that's it's really cool yeah but also i have been making steady progress on stephen king's it which we talked about in a previous talking shop episode (laughs) i'm still reading it it's a long book i'm not surprised you're still (laughs) here and 
to end on a lighter note, I found a really touching paragraph in the book, which is kind of why I like horror and it sounds cheesy, but I feel like it really does shine a light in the darkness sometimes. <laughs> so I thought I'd share that with you guys just so you don't think I'm entirely insane for being interested in these sort of super dark stuff. Anyways, so it goes, maybe he thought there aren't any such things as good friends or bad friends. Maybe there are just friends, people who stand by you when you're hurt and who help you feel not so lonely. Maybe they're always worth being scared for and hoping for and living for. Maybe worth dying for too, if that's what has to be. No good friends, no bad friends. Only people you want, need to be with. People who build their houses in your heart. Oh, and that I is really that sweet. just a really sweet, like that's something you don't expect to find in a Stephen King book. <laughs> no, especially because I, I know a decent chunk about what's in that book and it. And so I'm kind of like, oh, well, there's a nice little thing in there, even though some of it's really disturbing. <laughs> I think it's, you know, it's also like, despite being a story about this horrifying clown, it's also a story about a group of kids who draw together in the face of evil. So it is quite cool in that sense, in that sense that they all get really close. Yeah. <laughs> and that was a really sweet paragraph. I was quite touched. Shall we end on that paragraph then? Yeah, yes. Okay. Next time on Dear Writer, we're up to our main podcast again. And this time we're going to talk about how Sarah and I go about researching a novel and some of our tips and tricks for researching better and smarter. Yep. Just to reiterate that there still are some spots left on our author's spotlight section. So just go to our website at www.lindersoncreations.com. And then if you go to the podcast section, you'll find the be featured on Dear Writer and it'll give you a little form to fill out and we'd love to have a chat to you. Yes. We don't bite. <laughs> no, we're very friendly and we love learning about other authors and their journeys. So interesting. Yes. Yeah. If you'd like to know more about us or any of our writing projects, you can one, visit us at lindersoncreations.com or you can contact us on Facebook or Instagram, which is also under Linderson Creations. I hope you enjoyed the show and please rate and review us on your podcast of choice. And we'll be back next week. Happy writing, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>